please turn with me to the book of John. We'll be starting in chapter 6. It'll be on page 892 in the Blue Bibles. John chapter 6, starting in verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread of life that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Who Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. The word of the Lord. to see you all again this morning. I saw most of you last night. and uh, I know it's taxing for some folks who are busy during Christmas time. Um, and uh, I thought it was important for us to gather on a Sunday morning together. Because it's the Christmas time we think about family reunions. And really Sunday mornings are, are the family reunions for the church. But it's really not with the extended family, but with our immediate family, nuclear family, the family of God. And, uh, and we only get to see each other uh, once a week, some of us. So, so it's something to look forward to, uh, this family gathering. And, and I look forward to it each week. Uh, and, uh, and we're finally finishing this chapter in John. We spent three weeks in John 6, which is longer than usual. Um, and, uh, but this passage has uh, so many helpful teachings for us. Um, and it's probably a little more complex than... Uh, the usual uh, in passages in John, so I encourage you to follow along closely uh, as we go. And uh, if uh, I mean, if you receive a lot of people receive gifts during Christmas, um, but if you receive something that's too good to be true, let's say you got a little gift and it had a car key in it, uh, <laughs> then you might immediately ask yourself, so is this a joke, or I mean, what's the catch, right? Is this is it's like a key to, like, I don't know, remote-controlled car or something. You know, it's like, what's the, what's the catch? Because we've been trained in our life to um, know and to expect that nothing is free. Nothing is truly free, right? When they give you free music, they, you, have, you have to subscribe to their newsletter. When they give you a free burger, you have to fill out a survey, right? So when you get a pop-up on your laptop that says free iPad, you ignore it because you know it's a scam or somehow there's some fine print that's going to make sure you pay for it, right? Um, and so that's kind of what we're conditioned to expect. And when it comes to God's gift of eternal life, uh, there can be a similar sense of skepticism or doubt. Uh, what's the catch? If it's really free, if it's all God, what's, I mean, what's in it for him? Like, why would he do that? And if it's so good, if it's too good to be true, why do so many people reject it? Uh, and that's the question that confronts Jesus and his disciples in this passage. And the answer he provides is that... It's the triune God who gives and guarantees eternal life. And we must depend on him because of that. We have to depend on the triune God because he's the one that gives and guarantees eternal life. And there's three things that fall uh, in that. And the first is that the Father gives his people. And I'll explain that in a second. The Father gives his people. And the Son, secondly, gives his flesh. And third, finally, the Spirit gives his life. So all 
all three persons of the Trinity each have a unique role to play in giving and guaranteeing eternal life for people who follow him. The Father gives his people, the Son gives his flesh, and the Spirit gives his life. And I'll talk about them in turn. The first thing uh, is the Father gives his people. And what do we mean by that? Uh, Read verses 35 to 38 with me in your Bibles. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Right, so we've covered this. Jesus is the bread of life, the eternal sustenance. Uh, and that's why those who come to him and believe in him never hunger and thirst again. But then, curiously, uh, it says some of those people that were living, like, really right alongside Jesus, seeing all the amazing miracles that he does, and listening to all these amazing claims that he makes, still refuse to believe in him. And we like to think, I mean, if I were there, I don't think I'd have any doubts, right? I mean, we were 2,000 years removed, so we might justify our doubts and say, well, but, but if we were right there, we'd think, oh, man, it'd be so easy to believe. How come these people don't believe? Does that mean that Jesus' mission was in some way a failure? I mean, is he just, he came to seek and save the lost, but he doesn't seem to be doing a particularly good job of that, at least at this point. Um, so what's going on? And Jesus provides the answer in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Right? So Jesus' confidence in the success of his mission is to seek and save the lost is not in the goodwill and receptivity of the people. So he's not going out there hoping that because people are ready and they're ready to listen and willing to be charitable that he's going to be successful. But rather his confidence in his mission is in the fact that the Father gives him his people. Right? And note the progression of the verbs, the logical progression there. It's the Father, all that the Father gives, those, all those people come. And it's all those who come that Jesus never casts out. So that there's progression from Father's giving to people's coming and to Jesus not casting out. I mean, the positive way to put that would be Jesus keeping or preserving people. So every single person that the Father gives comes to Jesus, and every single one of those people Jesus keeps and preserves so that they are never lost. Right? So that's, the, that's what we call, theologians call, and we all call the doctrine of election. Um, and verse 44 makes this even clearer. If you look at verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, this is the same truth phrased differently. Only those whom the Father draws come to Jesus. Really, there's no way uh, around this. I mean, it's, it's if the God, because if, unless God draws everybody, which he evidently doesn't because some people don't believe in him, uh, then this, this must mean that he must choose some to draw. He draws some to come to him. And this doctrine of election scandalizes some people. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to believe. They cry foul or unfair, right? So why does God choose some people to the exclusion of others? Isn't that unfair? Isn't that unjust? But let me ask you this question. Um, if Warren Buffett gives $2.8 million to the Gates Foundation, which he did recently, uh, do we have the right to cry foul and say, well, that's not fair at all. You should have given $2.8 million to Trinity Cambridge Church, right? <laughs> of course not, right? I mean, we, we, 
he has, he has no reason whatsoever to give away his money. Right? It's the, the fact that he gives any of it is his generosity. We don't have any claim to that. Right? It's just, just because just, just, and he's the donor, he gets to do what he wants with it. Right? And in the same way, it's the father's prerogative to choose whom he will give eternal life to. Because no one deserves it. No one's entitled to it. He doesn't, have to, he doesn't owe us eternal life. And because all of us have sinned and rebelled against him and deserve his wrath and justice. Yet the father, in his grace, chooses some and gives them to his son. And that's a testament. And the fact that some, some of us, we find that sometimes uh, as unfair or unjust, that's a testament not to our sense of justice, but to our exceedingly self-righteousness that we complain about God's grace, his, his right to do so. Uh, so a father chooses and gives those whom he will give, save, whom we will save through his son. And then the son keeps them. And look at verse 38 and 39. Jesus says, for, right, so that's the clue, the word clue that tells us Jesus is about to give a reason for something. He's about to give the reason why he keeps them. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So the reason Jesus keeps these people is because he didn't come to do his own will or to choose his own people, but he came to do his Father's will. And it's his Father's will that Jesus keeps the people whom he's given him. And because of that, Jesus says, no, I will never, uh, he will not, I will not lose them, and I will keep them. And that's because he wants to be obedient. He's an obedient, perfect son. And what that means for us then is that if, if anybody uh, that Father gave and drew for it to himself fail to come to him, fail to attain eternal life in the end, then that would be to Jesus' eternal shame. Because he says explicitly he came to do his Father's will. And it's his Father's will that he never loses any one of them. And, and so why is this important? Why is the doctrine of election important? Because it's not just in there, in the Bible for no reason. It's supposed to function for us. And it's supposed to function in two different ways. And first, the doctrine of election promotes humility. Because God sovereignly chose to save us and we didn't earn our salvation, we don't have anything to boast about. Because if we think that God saved us because of our superior intelligence or uh, greater sincerity or morality or even greater faith, then we would have cause to be prideful. But because God saved us on His own accord, out of His own sovereign will, we have reason to be humble and grateful but not to be boastful and prideful. It's kind of the difference between uh, receiving a grant and receiving a donation, right? If you re- when you receive a grant, you apply for it, and because you are qualified for it, uh, more qualified than other applicants, that's why you got the grant. And when you get a grant, then you have something to boast about, so you, you can post it on your social media, file, I won this grant, right? But when you receive a donation, you have nothing to boast about, right? It's, be- it's simply the generosity and the will of the donor to give you this donation, so you just have a reason to be humbled and thankful. And that's how the doctrine of election is supposed to function. So that even when we look at people who are stubborn in their unbelief, we don't have anything to boast about in their presence. Because we were also saved by God's grace and His election drawing us to Himself. And the flip side of that is it, so it promotes humility, but it also provides assurance for us. Because it's... If you think about it this way, if you could merit salvation, if you could merit eternal life, it's something that we did to earn it, 
then in the same way, you could also demerit eternal life. You could do something wrong to mess it up because you, you earned it in the first place. So then we're constantly in this uh, sense, in this insecurity, just asking ourselves, do I have enough faith today? You know, have I been holy enough this week? Have I done enough good works in my life? Right? See, those questions will never leave us if we don't have the doctrine of election because we believe in the end, the result, that we came to be saved. We earned eternal life with our own doing. And, and so, and, but doctrine of election, because it assures that it's God who gives and guarantees eternal life. The Father gives His people. That tells us that we have assurance. We can have great assurance in that because God did it without our earning of any of it in the first place. There's a song that we sing sometimes as a church entitled, He Will Hold Me Fast. I don't know if you guys remember that. That song really gets at this truth well. One verse, it says, Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He will not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. And that's where our faith lies, not in our own earning or deserving or merit, but in God's election, his sovereign choosing. So that provides humility, it provides assurance and promotes humility for us. But what if you're not a believer? What if you're talking to someone who's not a believer? Uh, and what does that truth mean for them? Does that mean that they have to resign themselves to fatalism and say, well, I don't have faith, so I must not be chosen, and resign yourself to that faith? No, that's not at all what John says. Because look with me uh, in verse 40. This is a necessary corollary to the doctrine of election. Look at verse 40 with me. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. So notice there's two wills of the Father uh, given in this, in this passage. First is in verse 39. It says that it was the Father's will, the same word, that Jesus preserved those whom he's given, sovereignly given. And then in verse 40, the same word will is used, the Father's will that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. So there's two wills, what Jesus must do to keep the people that Father sovereignly gave, and then what we must do, which is to look on him and believe. So what the fact that the Father sovereignly chooses people does not abrogate our responsibility to look on Him and believe. Those two things exist simultaneously. And it's a mystery. It's a paradox. Um, and, and a pastor from the mid-20th century named Donald Gray Barnhouse, you guys may have heard of him, um, it's, uh, he had a remarkable facility for using analogies to explain difficult concepts. And he has a spectacular analogy about this that illustrates this truth that I'm going to share with you. Because um, he'd, he'd say this often. He says, imagine a cross like the one that Jesus died on, but imagine that it's so big that there's a door in the middle of it. Right? It's the doorway to heaven. So on the outside of the door, it says this. The words from the book of Revelation. It says, whosoever will may come. Whoever wishes, whoever believes, they may come. These words represent the free and universal gift, the offer of salvation to all people, right? And now, uh, on the other side of the door, if you enter through that door and then look back on the other side of the door, a happy surprise awaits the one who believes and enters. Because on the door, it says the words of Ephesians written, it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. On one side of the door, it says, 
whatsoever will may come. On the other side of the door, it says, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's, that's how election is supposed to matter. It's best understood in hindsight. When you've come to be saved, when you've come to have a relationship with God, have eternal life, you realize that, well, all along, God had chosen me and had been pursuing me. It wasn't me. It's best understood in that hindsight. So we need to hold those two truths together. And we could use the words of John in the same illustration. On the one side, it says, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him may come. And on the other side, it says, all those whom the Father has given. Right? So this is how the Father gives His people. It's an important doctrine. And so now let's look then at how the Son gives His flesh in verses 47 to 59. Verses, I start with verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Uh, so this is a classic example of a familiarity breeding uh, contempt. Right? So these people, if you may recall, are in Jesus' hometown. They're in Galilee, in Capernaum, a town within Galilee. And so they knew Jesus' family. Uh, it doesn't say anything of whether they're still alive or not. Mary's still alive, uh, but they knew. They knew. Well, we knew your. We know your, who you're, where you're from. We know your family. We know Joseph. We knew Joseph and Mary. And so, what, so why are you saying? What is this nonsense about you coming down from heaven? We know exactly where you came from. So that's their uh, objection. But the irony of this is that not only do they betray ignorance of Jesus' virgin birth, right? So Mary had the immaculate conception, right? She conceived without intercourse. And, it's, and not only that, so that Jesus' true identity, they betray their ignorance of that as well because Jesus' true father is not Joseph, but it's God, God the Father. So Jesus is unapologetic, and he continues, verses 47 to 50. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus is saying that the bread he offers is far superior to the bread that Moses offered to the Israelites. And there is indisputable empirical evidence because the people, the Israelites who ate the manna in the wilderness, every single one of them died, right? And that's verifiable. And, but, but Jesus says, if you eat me, if you eat the flesh that I offer, the bread of life that I am, that you will have eternal life. Uh, and, uh, and the reason why Jesus can offer us eternal life, and there's, he gives two reasons. The first is that he's from heaven. Because he's from heaven, he can offer eternal life. He has access to eternal life. And the second is he came down, right? Because if he were still in heaven, he would not be able to offer this to us. It's because he's a bread from heaven that came down that is able to offer eternal life to us. As it says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. So Jesus' heavenly origin enables him to give eternal life, and the fact that he came to us and to impart this eternal life is what gives us access to it. And so that's the message of Christmas, isn't it? Right? As we remember this morning, without Christmas, without the incarnation, there can be no salvation. If he didn't come 2,000 years ago on this day, there can be no salvation for us. 
because he's the bread that came down from heaven. In, uh, there's a uh, series, uh, it's kind of a children's novel, but uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, series, Chronicles of Narnia, I don't know if some of you guys have read that, but in the last book uh, called The Last Battle, there's this wonderful scene where there's a, there's a manger, a stable, and that's kind of a portal to kind of eternal life or heaven. Uh, and, uh, and Lucy, one of the main characters, says about this, it's, in, the, it's inside is bigger than it's outside. Uh, they say about that stable. Um, and then Lucy says this, In our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. Right? That's such a cool way to refer to the incarnation. It's that a stable had inside it something that was bigger than our entire world. Isn't that amazing? That's what happened on Christmas Day. Jesus, the creator of the universe, came in the form of a creature. And if this doesn't cause us to marvel, there's something really uh, profoundly amiss. Because this is so much more incredible than just these fairy tale stories that we know of, like a king you know, taking on the, just uh, the identity of a commoner and living among them, or this prince becoming you know, some creature like a beast or a frog. I mean, it's, it's far, more, far more grander than that. Right? It's more like the author of the book somehow becoming the character in the book. I mean, that's just that's how mind-boggling it is, that God, the cosmic creator of the universe, comes into this story that comes, it becomes a creator to live among us. And, and it's because he did that, because he was the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God who became a Son of Man, that he's able precisely to save us. Because if he's not God, he can't rightly represent God or to offer forgiveness because he, God's the offended party. He's the only one that can forgive. But at the same time, because it's man who sinned, humanity that sinned, only humanity can offer restitution, make up for something. So Jesus had to be God and man in order to be able to bring salvation, give eternal life to us. And that's the genius of the incarnation. That's God's amazing plan. So that's 1 Timothy 2.5. It says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It's because he is man, he can offer his flesh to impart eternal life to us. And this is another thing that scandalizes the Jews. So there's first the doctrine of election, and here the doctrine of Jesus' flesh and eating of his flesh, right? So they say, verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? I mean, that's uh, Jews, of course, abstain from cannibalism, as we all do, right? And the entire Greco-Roman Empire uh, abstained from cannibalism. So they're asking this question, what do you mean you can give us your flesh to eat? And then Jesus doesn't make it any easier on them in his response. Instead of qualifying it, he goes further. He says in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Um, And drinking blood, I mean, cannibalism is bad enough, but drinking blood has been forbidden since Leviticus 17, 10, 11. Since the time of Moses, drinking blood has been forbidden. So the Jews, for the Jews, faithful Jews who have been keeping this for a long time, there's this visceral reaction against what Jesus is saying. You have to eat your flesh and drink your blood for us to have eternal life. But of course, Jesus isn't speaking literally here, right? And we see that in verse 54. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
But then we call verse 40 and compare it side by side. It says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. You guys notice the parallel? The result is the same, right? They, 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 they are going to have eternal life and be raised up on the last day. The same result of these two sentences, but the way you get there is two different things, parallel. Verse 40, it's by looking on the Son and believing in Him, but in verse 54, it's by feeding on His flesh and drinking His blood. So they're, this, they're parallel because they're referring to the same thing. To feed on his flesh and to drink his blood is to look on the sun and to believe in him. They're conceptual parallels. And that's why Augustine, a 4th century theologian, he wrote this. He says, believe and you have eaten. Right? So it's by faith. And that's why uh, in our uh, communion liturgy, there's a part that says, we receive the bread and, and juice by faith which is the hand and mouth of our souls. That's why that, that line is in there. It's by faith that we receive this. And so the, the question that these uh, disciples are asking is precisely the mistake that Catholics make uh, that, that we see a lot is, is that they point to John 6 as indisputable evidence that salvation is gained by partaking in the Lord's Supper. They say, you get saved by eating Jesus. This, that's where salvation is, right? That's, unless you do that, you're not saved, right? Uh, and so they believe in a doctrine called transubstantiation, which says that the bread and the wine, even though in their appearance, or what they call accidents, they appear unchanged, actually within the substance is changed. It actually becomes the physical blood and, and body of Jesus. That's what they believe. And that's how they interpret John 6, and that's why you must eat that in order to have salvation. But as we've seen, they're misinterpreting that parallel structure of the metaphorical language to, to believe, eat his flesh and to drink of him is to believe in him and look to, look to Jesus Christ. So that's the mistake the Catholics make. But there's also a mistake that a lot of evangelicals make regarding this passage. And, and because this passage is not primarily about the Lord's Supper, but it is secondarily about the Lord's Supper. It does teach us something about the Lord's Supper. It, doesn't have, it has something to do with it. Because if you imagine the first century readers of John's gospel reading this, the audience, original audience, they, they've been practicing the, the Lord's Supper for decades. So right when they hear the word give thanks, which is what Jesus did before he distributed the bread in verse 11, give thanks comes from, it's from the Greek word, which means Eucharist, right? That's the name that the, the early church used for the Lord's Supper, to give thanks, and so right when they see that in their mind, they're thinking, oh, the Lord's Supper, the breaking of bread, this all reminds them of the Lord's Supper. And so when they come to this section, verse 54, it sounds even more like the Lord's Supper because notice what Jesus says, verse 54, but eating his body, and then he speaks of feeding on his flesh. So he switches the words. Before he was talking exclusively about eating the body. But now he says feeding the flesh. It's two different words. And the word feeding, it, it means to munch on, to chew. So it's a very graphic, kind of a physical word. Kind of a, and then to the word flesh also is, is much more, uh, much less, less abstract than body. And it's more concrete. Like the flesh, you have to feed, you have to munch on, chew on my flesh. That's what Jesus says here. Uh, and I think that's unmistakably an, an intentional uh, uh, way John, which br brings attention to how the physical dimension of our eating and drinking in the Lord's Supper brings spiritual nourishment and consumption uh, as well. So then let me just bring out two lessons about the Lord's Supper, since I haven't done any teaching on the Lord's Supper uh, up to this point uh, that we can get from this. 
So first is that the primary meaning of the Lord's Supper, the eating of the bread and, and drinking of the juice, is faith. It's to believe in the Son. That's the primary meaning. So without faith, the Lord's Supper doesn't do anything for us. Unless you have faith, it, it has no benefits to give to us. It's not some you know, autonomous ritual that no matter where you're coming from, if you eat it, some kind of, there's kind of a magic happening that he somehow gives you spiritual nourishment. It's not like that. The primary meaning is faith. You have to have faith. And so that's the mistake of the Catholics that we must avoid. But second, it doesn't it follow from this truth that the Lord's Supper is merely a memorial. Right? It's merely a symbol, just a remembering what, what Jesus did. And that's the mistake that often many evangelicals make. Because, sure, we're not eating and drinking the physical body and blood of Jesus at the Lord's Supper, but we are eating and drinking the spiritual body and blood of Jesus. Right? And so, if, so you can think about it this way. If the preaching on Sunday morning is a proclamation of Jesus, then the Lord's Supper is a participation in Jesus, His body, His spiritual body and blood. Right. And in that, in that sense, it, it, has three, it accomplishes three things when we participate in the Lord's Supper. First, it unites us to Christ, right? because that's, I, it, it reinforces that union that we have with Him through faith. Um, and through that union with Him, it also reinforces the union we have with one another, because we are the body of Christ as a church. And then thirdly, through that union with Christ, we also are entered into the fellowship of the triune God, because Jesus is a person within the Trinity. So then, when we eat the bread, and, and it's in the same way when we eat physical food and then drink, they are ingested, they go into our system, they become part of us. In a way, in a spiritual sense, through the Lord's Supper, the body of Christ becomes a part of us. We grow in our union with Him. And that's an incredible mystery. So verse 56 confirms it. It says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Right? And uh, I think uh, an analogy might be helpful uh, here for you to think about it. Because, uh, I mean, uh, well, let me mention this first. Because you guys might remember Paul's teaching on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians. And, and he says this in chapter 10, verse 16 and 17. The cup of blessing that we bless, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he sees the physical partaking of the Lord's Supper as participation in the body and blood of Christ. And then later in chapter 11, he says this, this warning toward believers. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Right? It's this kind of dire warning uh, really would not make any sense if the Lord's Supper was all symbol, mere symbol and no substance. There would be no judgment. Uh, there'd be nothing wrong with treating it uh, as an empty kind of ritual, and reenactment merely of, of what God said. No, Lord's Supper is serious business. It's a serious spiritual uh, ritual. And I, it's helpful for me to think about it this way. So when you're born, right, you have life once and for all, right? Uh, when a child is born, they have life, intrinsic life. They have life within themselves, right? Uh, but 
that doesn't mean even that doesn't mean then that they could stop eating and drinking, right? They need to keep eating and drinking in order to sustain that life. Even though they don't have life because of the food, because they had life before they ate anything, they, life was given to them, but they eat and drink to sustain that life, right? So I think about it, and it's similar. So for spiritually, it's by faith that we're born again. That's how we once, once and for all have the life that comes through Christ. But that life we nurture and we grow and we sustain through our participation in the Lord's Supper, right? Uh, and that's, uh, and so faith is the instrument by which we receive eternal It's through that that happens. But the Lord's Supper, like eating and drinking, brings the, sus- the necessary sustaining uh, grace for that. And that's why we as a church practice the communion every week uh, instead of doing it you know, once a month or once a quarterly uh, because we see it as an important aspect of church life. Uh, and, and John Calvin, for example, Protestant reformer, said there's two marks of a true church. If a church is a true church, is a genuine church, then two things have to happen. And he says, first, is that the word of God is purely preached and heard. And then second, the sacraments, he's referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, are administered according to Christ's institution. I mean, throughout church history, people have seen those two things as marks of the true church. And so we do that uh, every week. So try to keep those two things clear and in the right order, right? is that when we think about the Lord's Supper, the first sense, the primary sense in which Son gives His flesh is by dying on the cross for our sins and we take hold of that by faith. A secondary sense in which the Son gives His flesh, which is effective only because of the cross, is through the Lord's Supper and participation in it. And that's why it's very serious when a believer is ex or a member of a church is excommunicated and are no longer able to partake in the Lord's Supper. Because it doesn't just mean they can't just go home and say, well, I have faith in the Lord, so I'm fine. I can do it on my own. No. If you've been excluded from the Lord's Supper, that means you no longer have participation in the body and blood of Christ. That's, what, that's why that was so taken so seriously uh, throughout church history. Um, and that's why churches don't do that lightly uh, unless there is uh, clear evidence that these people are unregenerate in their unrepentant uh, sin. So that's how the Father gives His people, the Son gives His flesh, and then finally the Spirit gives His life. Uh, and if you are having a hard time with this, please uh, come talk to me afterward. Uh, but uh, uh, you're not alone because the people who are hearing Jesus here in the first time have a hard time too. So they say in verse 60, well, many of the disciples heard it. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Um, by hard, they don't mean that it's difficult to understand, but that it's disagreeable to them. It's difficult to accept. Uh, but notice how Jesus doesn't stop there and then says, well, no, actually, it's not a hard saying. It's, you think it's hard just because you misunderstood me. You know, he doesn't say that. Disciples seem to have understood him rightly, and, and that's precisely where the, off, the offense lies. And so, and when it's, so then Jesus somehow perhaps supernaturally, knowing that these disciples were having a hard time, he says to them in, verse, them in verses 61 and 62, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? In other words, if you think it's offensive when I say that I descended from heaven to give eternal life, then how much more will you find offense when you see me later ascend back to heaven where I was before and then doing that and by doing that given even more shocking and indisputable proof of my true identity. He's saying that if you're offended by this, you're going to be even more offended when I, am, I later return to where I came from. 
So then Jesus continues in verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. Now this is a really hard verse to, uh, to understand, uh, interpret, because it's very easy to misinterpret that verse, to, to mean, to negate everything that kind of came before it. Um, uh, because Jesus mentions his flesh. So what does he mean that the flesh is no help at all? Does he mean that his flesh is no help at all? I mean, I don't think that's what the passage is saying because Jesus says very clearly in verse 55 and 56, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Right? Jesus' flesh, that's what we celebrate on Christmas Day, his incarnation is integral to his saving mission. Without his flesh, there's no salvation for us. So he's not talking here about his flesh, then saying that the flesh is no help at all, but rather he's talking about the flesh of his disciples. And you can, there's an uh, instructive parallel in John 3, which we went through, uh, verses 3 to 6, where Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So you see that contrast between the flesh and the Spirit. So what he's saying when he says that flesh is no help at all, it is the Spirit who gives life, but the flesh is no help at all. He's explaining why his followers have such a hard time with this. They can't believe, they can't see the kingdom of God, they can't enter into the kingdom of God because they were born not of the spirit but of flesh. And so Jesus says of them, the flesh is no help at all. And that's why in verse 65 he reminds them, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. So to put it really bluntly, Jesus is saying, those who reject his words are doing so because it has not been granted by the Father for them to come. So, uh, so then in contrast to the flesh, then it is the Spirit who gives life. So it's only those who have been born of the Spirit who has His life that are able to see and enter into the kingdom of God. So the Father gives His people, the Son gives His flesh, and the Spirit gives His life, right? So the Father initiates and plans the salvation. It's the Son who obeys and executes the salvation. And it's the Spirit who applies and manifests this salvation. So all three of them work in our salvation. And how exactly does the Spirit give life? Jesus says in the second half of verse 63, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. The words of Jesus. The spirit, the, the life that the spirit gives is tied to his words. The spirit of God does not work apart from the word of God. And there can be no eternal life and experience of the spirit apart from the proclamation of the word of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the same way that Jesus only does what the Father wills, the Spirit only does what glorifies the Son and points to Him. And that's why Jesus says He has the words of eternal life, as Peter confesses in verse 68. Now, uh, this is an incredible teaching, uh, really uh, jam-packed. So the Father gives us, talking about John's teaching, not mine here. And John, so He gives, the Father gives His people, the Son gives His flesh, and the Spirit gives His life. And you would think that there would be, uh, you, you wonder what the response would be when people hear this. And disappointingly, it's not wild popularity and acclaim, but desertion by his own disciples. 
verse 66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Uh, so the 12 stay with him, as you see in the later verse, but to his wider circle of disciples, they all leave him uh, because of this teaching. And this is helpful for us as a church as we seek to grow and as we seek to minister to people because it's widespread practice throughout churches to try to be popular, right? Uh, it's, we put up decorations, programs, events, and then we shape our services and messages to cater to people in the world. But Jesus' example here is quite contrary to that. Right? He, he seems really almost shockingly unconcerned about his own popularity. Right? Indeed, it almost seems like he's intent on being unpopular. He says these things and so his disciples leave him. And I think the reason for that is because Jesus is not concerned with impressing men, but with pleasing his father. He's not concerned to be popular, but he wants to be faithful to his father. And similarly, we're going to be tempted at times as a church to cater to the world and in order to attract more of them. Right? But at those times, we have to remember the message of this passage is that it's the triune God who gives and guarantees eternal life. And if that's really true, and if we really believe that as a church, then we can't ultimately have put our confidence in our programs and expertise and strategies, abilities, or advertisements. That's not what's going to bring these people to eternal life. It's only God, the triune God, who can give and guarantee eternal life. So what that means for us then is the mission that we have set out to accomplish as a church is impossible in our own strength. It's impossible. It's beyond the reach. The ministry success is beyond the reach of our own abilities because God is the one who guarantees and gives eternal life, and that should drive us to prayer. And, and I want to reiterate what Matt said earlier, too, as it's maybe in the new year, you can resolve to be more regular at the corporate prayer service. Or it's, it's because it's only by prayer, and we, as we depend on God, do we acknowledge this truth in fullness, that really only He can give and guarantee eternal life. And so as a church, and as we interact with unbelievers, as we minister as a church, let's remember this truth, that it is to try in God who gives and guarantees eternal life. Let's pray together.